movie junkies and cinephiles, it's time for the SLS Cast with your hosts, Matt and Tim. And welcome, one and all, to episode 282 of the SLS Cast. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, this is the Patrick Henry episode of the SLS Cast because it turns out that this year, this very year, marks the birthday of Patrick Henry from the Revolutionary War period, and he would have turned... 282 this year. And with that wonderful little bit of Patrick Henry knowledge, I, of course, am Matt. And coming to us all the way from sunny California is our resident Sony employee and freshly vacationed... Tim! And might I add, not sunburned. Ooh. Well, yes, uh, you you did have that wonderful bit of... um, I, I believe you said you were going to the old Arizona... You said that as if I was going somewhere north. Arizona? Did some of your Minnesotan come out of there? Arizona? Well, don't you know now you get a little bit of the Minnesota when you go to the Arizona. Yeah, so uh, growing up in Texas, we would drive out to California every so often, and we always stopped in Tucson. Tucson, Arizona. I know it's called Tucson, but in Tuscan, Tuscan, Arizona. That's if you want (laughs) to classy it up a little bit. But it was fun. Uh, We stopped in Sedona, me in the more significant SO, which I love Sedona so much. I ventured there uh, around the time when you and I started the show back seven years ago now. That was the last time I'd been there. But we went there for a couple nights to enjoy the wine, go do some uh, high-altitude hiking, which was – it literally took my breath away. Like, literally. (laughs) It was difficult to hike, but it was beautiful. There was not a cloud in the goddamn sky, so the sunsets weren't really that spectacular-looking. But – I've never had to apply so much sunscreen on my body as I did this trip because there were literally no clouds. There were no clouds in Sedona. There were no clouds in Cave Creek, Arizona. There were no clouds in Scottsdale, Arizona. Literally, Arizona is void of all clouds. Good to know. Have you ever spent any time in Arizona? I have been through Arizona a few times and... I have uh, flown uh, to Arizona once. I can't. I went to Phoenix, I think, one time for a layover. I don't recall any clouds, but um, my grandmother, uh, I guess my grandma-in-law, uh, she actually is one of those people who is an RVer. So she and uh, she and Grandpa Arden. Uh, sorry, I got I got Grandma Judy and Grandpa Arden. So you know, so they they literally climb in their RV and they drive around the United States and they always make a fun loop every year. And depending on who they want to see that year is depending upon you know what circuit route they're going to take. But they do spend their winters in Quartzsite, Arizona. So I am sure that if there is anyone who could refute the idea that there are never any clouds in Arizona. It would be her. So I will do my best to reach out to her and see what she says about that. Or maybe just in May. Maybe maybe there's an old saying out there. I don't know. You can't rhyme anything pertaining to clouds in Arizona with Arizona. What do they say in May? 
in Arizona, yay, there be no clouds. Now I guess we could just title the show, There's Nothing That Rhymes With Clouds in Arizona. Indeed. But there is (laughs) actually one story I would like to share with you, because I know for a fact, it's taken me about six years to get to this moment where I can tell you a story of my more significant Esso's parents, my, my future in-laws. More importantly, this one pertains to her father, who himself is a very kooky, fun, uh, interesting, but fun guy. Um, he's a little, he's, I think he's probably about 53 or 54 right now. And lately he's, you know, he likes to prove to other people that he can, he can still go out and work out and play ball and just do whatever the fuck anybody else can do. I think it's just a really weird offset middle-aged dilemma he's he's currently working through. I don't know. But literally three days before they were going to meet us in Arizona, that's one of the reasons why we went to Arizona, because we were going to meet them in Cave Creek, which is an old western town that was known in the 1800s for being a pretty rough town. At least that's what her, her father told me. It felt like Disneyland in a way, because you drive through the town and it still looks like an old western town. All the bars there are super country western. One of his favorite bars that he went to the first time they went out there, which made him fall in love with Cave Creek, Arizona, and Arizona in general, they do rodeos there. And they have like three different bars. They have barbecue. And he really found himself in this town. So that's why, you know, we decided to to go over there. So three days before they were going to depart for Cave Creek, where we were going to meet them, he was taking part in a baseball game where he went to jump up for a ball or something. And his Achilles tendon just like snapped and it just rolled up, you know, like the blinds in a cartoon, you know, how they just kind of roll up like (laughs) that's what happened. I think it's the Achilles tendon. Instead of wearing crutches, he wanted to be able to take part in the festivities that he kept telling us, mainly me about for the past two or three years or so. He ended up ordering basically... A peg leg where you put your knee into this little saddle type of deal and you you have this artificial, this artificial leg. Keep in mind, though, he didn't lose his leg. His leg is still in a cast. So therefore, it's jettisoning out three feet behind him. And, you know, he still wants to go out and and have a good time. So he's wearing this peg leg, kind of get used to it because it's a little it's a little silly. It's a great conversation piece with your Uber driver. Um, I guess there's more of a scientific medical term for it. It was a pirate leg. And we get to this place that's packed with families and there's bull riding. People actually ride their fucking horses and park them right next to all the Harley Davisons that are there also. So this guy is like pegging around wearing his big old cowboy hat, his tight ass jeans with his flannel shirt tucked in, just really getting into it and just drinking and eating. It was very uncomfortable because I I thought that's where the evening was going to end. We were going to go to this place and watch the bull riding, eat, drink and have a good time. There's more space there. And he was like, no, we're going to go. We're going to go listen to live music at this place called Buffalo, whatever, right next door. We walk across the street to go to this other bar, this dance hall. We walked, he hobbled or pegged over there. uh, And we get up there and all the rough looking biker people and the horse people just kind of give us that side eye. Like, what's going on here? And we get in, we sit down, we find a table off in the distance. And as the shiner box are flowing, the whiskey is going, everybody's having a good time. He sure as shit wanted to go dancing. 
And it's not a big dance hall saloon. It's pretty much like a bar with a little tiny seven foot area to where you can actually do some dancing in. But it's difficult to do that when you have 35 other drunken cowboy people up there wanting to do honky tonk dancing. It's difficult for them to actually enjoy it when they have to worry about this dude hobbling around with three feet of cast leg just jettisoning from his ass. And on top of that, he has a funky looking pirate leg that has its own foot on it and a heel. Now, Matthew, if you're put in that situation, would you leave the house, let alone go to a biker country western cowboy bar where if you said the wrong thing, they could easily just like push you over? I guess it would depend on the likelihood of my oddity increasing my chances of getting laid. Would it increase my chances of getting laid? No. Then probably not. No. I mean, <laughs> I guess I could have done a better job at explaining the peg leg. Did this guy not, not realize it? <laughs> I, I personally know I guess I'd stay home. But uh, I, he, he definitely didn't want it to ruin what he had planned. It's a magical sight to see when you see your future father-in-law with a peg leg. He looks like a pirate, but damn, he's dressed like a cowboy. That right there is the country song that needs to be written. <laughs> well, there he is. He looks like a cowboy, but he dresses like a pirate. Well, that's not how you sing country. Maybe kids country. Kids bop country. <laughs> country kids bop. <laughs> pirate country kids bop. <laughs> oh, who lives in a peg leg on the dance floor with me? Tim's future father-in-law. <laughs> Nice. At any rate, yeah, we've definitely killed a lot of time. So something fun and interesting for me that happened. I am now no longer graduating at the end of the summer. I have decided to kill myself over the next six months and will instead graduate <laughs> with a double major. So if I sound like I am not all here over the next few months, that's probably why. But Tim, being the amazing, gracious dude that he is, um, is definitely going to do his damnedest to work with me and make sure that uh, the show remains unaffected. Or we just find a Christopher Plummer. I don't know if I want to disappear under those auspices, though. <laughs> Why? Why is Matt replaced again? What? I mean, although I don't think I could be mad if Christopher Pl if we got Christopher Plummer to replace me, hell yeah. Maybe we'd be his first podcast that, that he's be ever cool. been on, listened to, or even known about and then we trick him into hosting for like the next six months that would be awesome oh you want me to sit here and talk for eight hours yes <laughs> that will not be eight episodes right there <laughs> so i i was volunteering at my kid's school this uh over the last seven eight months and um i have gotten to know quite a few of the students there and everybody, you know, I, I'm, I am, you know, Mr. Quinton now, you know, and I go through the halls and I, I read for the kids and stuff like that. And so I got all these kids come up and they're always like, oh, Mr. Quinton, da, 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 da. And so I've been going around now that school's out and I'm like delivering to people's houses or uh, I, I took the kids out to lunch and all of a sudden now everywhere I go, Mr. Quinton, is that you? I'm like, holy crap. 
it's been, it's kind of fun. I kind of I kind of get to feel like what teachers feel like when when kids see their teacher for the first time outside of school, like they realize that their teacher is a human and does not just exist within the realm of the school itself. And you you know your mind is blown when you're like 7 years old and you're like, "Wow, they actually do things like go shopping for groceries." So, that's been kind of fun. I've, I've now, been enjoying that. You like it because it's something new for you. How does your wife, who's a teacher, how how does she respond to that? Does she get annoyed? Does she embrace well, it? Well, she spent so much time teaching in another district that she never she never experienced that. Like, oh, she, it only ever happened like three or four times. So she was always just kind of like, oh hey, and would say hello. Uh, so and then she has a job where. Uh, in this district, uh, her job has a limited um, has a limited scope for students and stuff, and she kind of hops around in different classrooms. So she doesn't have like one dedicated class like a regular teacher. And so it's also not at least thus far, we haven't seen a lot of the whole, oh, look, Mrs. Quinton. We haven't seen that yet. That's yeah. one way to get out of it. Exactly. Exactly. But we have definitely killed enough time for our intro. I, I think we, uh, I think we should go ahead and uh, check the old mail sack. What do you say? Check that mail sack. Check it good. Check that mail sack like you should. Hey, look at that! We've actually got something in the old mail sack. Yes. Miss Diana, she has written us, and the subject line reads, Bad Samaritan. She says, Hi guys, here's a tidbit to give your sack some ballast. I love it. I love it. I love it. <laughs> we all like a ballast sack. That's right. I saw Bad Samaritan, and although I agree the writing is flimsy and full of plot holes, I must say it's an enjoyable watch for two reasons. One, Lots of jump scares in classic horror tradition. Come on, Matt. As a horror fan, you gotta agree. Number two, hello, Doctor Who in the house. My fave doctor, by the way, David Tennant. He does bad so good. Later, dudes. Diana. All right. So as far as number one goes, I definitely can see where you're coming from. I don't necessarily agree that they are in the classic horror tradition, but it plays into a different trope of horror in the way that the bad guy gets played, which definitely comes to fruition in number two, where you said that David Tennant does bad so good. I wholeheartedly agree. Um, and while I will always... Um, have to put Tom Baker as my number one. Uh, David Tennant definitely gets that nudge to number two for my favorite doctors. And of course, from the 2005 reboot on, uh, yeah, I was all about David Tennant. Even though, oh gosh, who, oh, what was his name? He was in G.I. Joe. He was the bad guy. Channing Tatum. No. Bruce Willis. Dwayne the Rock no. Johnson, Christopher Eccleston. I just thoroughly he was enjoyed in G. I. Christopher Joe? Eccleston. Mm -hmm. He played really? Destro. Yeah. Oh, Christopher Eccleston was Destro. Oh, 
And he was also the bad guy in Thor The Dark World and, you know, whatever. But yeah, so I was a super huge fan of Christopher, Christopher Eccleston as uh, the Doctor, and I was glad he was able to do that reboot. But as always, Diana, thank you so very much for the wonderful email. If you would like to reach out to us via email, you can send us an email to the show at slscast.com. And of course, if you want to follow us on Twitter, you do that by following us at VSLScast. Uh, and if you want to support the show in any other fun way, you can always do that by going to patreon and looking us up over there and uh you know hey support us as you see fit and that is that would you like to go ahead and jump into the news sir yes let's do that here we go folks it's the news First up from me is uh, from usatoday.com by way of the Associated Press. Uh, Sesame Street sues makers of Melissa McCarthy puppet movie The Happy Time Murders. That is right. Um, basically, uh, makers of Sesame Street are suing the creators of a new Melissa McCarthy movie saying they're abusing the famed puppet's sterling reputation to promote the film. Um, but what it is is that... Um, all right, so Henson's son is the guy behind uh, this movie, or one of the guys behind the movie, and he is literally a creator of, uh, you know, he, he's one of the creative minds behind the Muppets, the Muppet Workshop, and the things that, and the Muppets that go into um, the in, into Sesame Street. Now, granted, the tagline "All Sesame" or "All uh, No Sesame All Street." Uh, definitely makes that play, and it would make sense that Sesame Street would try to take this preemptive measure just to make sure that somehow, some way, some idiot fucking parent who doesn't understand the concept would, you know, not confuse the two. Um, and the 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 lawsuit itself also helps give continued publicity to the happy time murders and maybe that movie needs it because i actually watched the red band trailer um i i know i shouldn't have i you guys know me i don't like watching trailers but um it it i thought i was watching it under the guise of a teaser trailer um which sometimes aren't as bad and and you know the idea of the movie intrigued me anyway so i tried to see what it was all about um this movie does not look very good <laughs> and i really think that this was just a ploy um through the company making the film to get sesame workshop who is the company not it's not children's television workshop anymore uh sesame workshop to sue just to keep it in the press um I don't know. Tim, what do you think? Have you even heard of this Happy Time Murders movie? Did you know about this lawsuit, et cetera, et cetera? Yes. I've heard about Happy Time Murders years ago. Brian Henson's been wanting to make this movie for like 10 years. It's a movie that he wrote years ago. I'm sure multiple drafts have been reworked over those 10 years or whatever. But I know it's like a passion project of his. 
personally, I was not super impressed with the movie. I think their idea of marketing the material is that, yes, Brian Henson, the Henson name, they have a, they have a reputation for being family-friendly, catering to children especially. So I think they personally went over the top in the Red Band trailer just to show people, hey, this is not a movie for kids. I mean, that's at least the kind of feeling I got while watching it. I think it still could be a good movie. I'm not a huge Melissa McCarthy fan, but I'm a huge, huge, huge Muppet fan. I really like that style of humor, and I think it could easily translate pretty well in an R-rated setting. Because, like what the trailer says, and like what we already know, Brian Henson did direct Muppet Christmas Carol, he did Muppet Treasure Island, I mean, he's worked on Sesame Street, he worked on The Muppet Show, I mean, so he's done so much that you're going to have that same feel, like what we as adults who grew up on watching The Muppets, what we loved about it, this is just catering more towards vulgarity and raunchy humor. But at the same time, I don't think it's going to be raunchy for raunchy's sake. Well, I guess maybe that would that is the case, but how they go about doing it. I think people forget that we have so many movies where people are just being raunchy that there's really not a lot of wit and comedy behind it. I mean, think about Steve Martin's The Jerk or The Man with Two Brains. The hilarity, when it comes to being R-rated, is actually still funny. And granted... In the trailer, we do see Cop Muppet Dude creaming everywhere, jizzing, jizzing all over the walls, but it's all silly string. But it's how, how they capture that, to me, in context, could be kind of funny. I don't know. It's, it's hard for me to pass judgment without seeing any more of it. I'm just holding out on the fact that I know what Brian Henson has done. I know what they're capable of doing. And I, I just hope all that same type of nuanced comedy is within this flick, despite it being a raunchy R movie. Right on, right on. Okay, man. Well, uh, take it away. What do you got for us? Via moviephone.com. It's official. Transformer 7 has been pulled from release schedule. This was actually posted on May 24th. So it's not super old news and it's not new news, but I, a lot of people haven't really been talking about this. So I thought I'd uh, bring it up here on the show. And the article says this. Oh, and it's written by Gina Carbone, and it says this. It's not happening. Paramount shuffled its release schedule around a bit and removed Transformers 7 completely. It was previously set to arrive in theaters on June 28th of next year. The Bumblebee spinoff, considered Transformers 6, is still scheduled for this December 21st. This is what can happen when a studio gets too ambitious. Back in 2016, Paramount announced the release dates for Transformers 5, 6, and 7, with 5 released on June 23, 2017, followed by Transformers 6 on June 8th, which is the Bumblebee movie, which is actually coming out in December, uh, and then Transformers 7, which is going to come out in June of uh, next year. It's not too shocking to see Transformers 7 get the boot after the performance of Transformers last night. It made a decent amount of money overseas, but just $130 million at the domestic box office off a reported $217 million budget. Plus, both critics and fans were unimpressed with the movie picking up multiple Razzie nominations and little else. But the franchise isn't done. It's reportedly getting a makeover slash reboot 
following Bumblebee, but we will see. Um, the article just goes on a little bit more from there. Matt, what do you think about this? Are you sad to see Transformers 7 go bye-bye? Are you excited <laughs> even for the Bumblebee movie or what? No. Um, given that we had already basically boycotted the most recent Transformers movie, I mean, we were we were both done. There was just no reason to go see it. Um, I have no desire to see the Bumblebee movie, and I could not be happier uh, about the decision to just make the seventh one disappear like the old Eddie Arnold song make it all go away just just do that and I think that um, I think the world will be happy I'm just wondering though if they're rebooting it if Michael Bay is going to be involved at all because Who he knows? is he's the stake going through the franchise's heart like if you're if you're gonna rip that stake out and it's gonna gush blood everywhere, it's gonna die. So you have to start off fresh, or you're just gonna be putting a brand new stake within the new reboot's heart. You know, it's just gonna be the same explosion, grainy, puke-looking bullshit. Matthew, I know this is uh, this has got you by the cockles of of whatever via Deadline.com. The Crow remake grounded again. Jason Moma and director Corn Hardy exit this year was published on May 31st, but it was written by Mike Fleming Jr. It says this exclusive for Deadline. The Crow has seen its wings clipped yet again. Sources tell me Jason Moma and director Corn Hardy formally withdrew from the film this morning. This, after Sony was close to exiting as the film's worldwide distributor. I'm told this has to do with creative and financial differences with Samuel Hadida, whose Davis Films holds underlying rights, and who was financing the film. Production was gearing up to start within the next five weeks in Budapest, and the picture was in full production, excuse me, in full pre-production with Hardy presiding. Sony Pictures announced last September that it had picked up the film for worldwide distribution and announced an October 11th, 2019 release date. Insider said that the deal hasn't closed. My sources said Hadida's inability to close a deal with Sony left the studio in exit mode and that directly precipitated the exits of the filmmaker and star. And the article goes on from there. They go into talking about who, how uh, Hardy... The film he's finished, I guess, is the Conjuring spinoff, The the Nun. Uh, and apparently he made his live-action feature-directing debut on The Hollow after drawing acclaim for his animated short, Butterfly. And he directed music videos by yada, yada, yada. So it's not like really we had a top visionary great director you know behind the scenes of crafting this movie i mean it might have been great i don't know but to me the crow is one of those movies that i i don't see the reason why you should update it but who am i to say because i'm not the biggest fan of the original flick despite of really loving uh the director of the original film matt what do you think about this well in the vein of Transformers 7, 
I mean, we were we we were kind of lamenting this being done anyway when you brought it up. I I, I think it was your news piece a few months ago. It may have been mine, but I'm pretty sure it was your news piece. Um, and we were we were talking about it then. Do we really need another Crow remake? I mean, does I mean, uh, especially given the checkered history of the Crow films. So honestly, I'm pretty good with this decision too. I I I, I think I'll sleep a little better. When was the last time? Like, do you go back often to watch the original Crow? Mm-hmm. I, I, to be fair, probably biannually. I, I would say I get an itch, and I'll scratch it by watching the original Crow. Yeah. And then from Variety here, Paramount Players lands film rights to Creepy Crawler's toy brand. This here is written by Justin Kroll. Paramount Players has acquired the feature film rights to Creepy Crawlers, the famous toy brand owned by Jack Specific. Sources tell Variety. Uh, this is me talking here. Uh, Creepy Crawlers was that toy geared for boys that I could never afford in the early 90s. Uh, now, continuing with the article, Neil H. Moritz will produce with Mark Gervitz and Toby Asher. Stephen Berman, chairman and CEO of Jax, will serve as a executive producer. Great. <laughs> Plot details are unknown at this time, but the film will be based on the classic toy molds of all sorts of creepy and slimy bugs. Originally developed by Mattel in the early 1960s, the toy was revitalized by Toy Max in the 90s, allowing children to create their own molds again, like the Creeple, People, and Eeks. Jax has taken over for the past decade and, while reusing some of the old favorites, have progressed to creating molds of classic cartoon characters like SpongeBob SquarePants and Pokemon. There's really nothing else to mention of substance in the rest of this article. Do we, do we, do you, are you, are your kids really looking forward to a creepy crawlers movie? Is there, are there any kids out there? I even, even kids our age, my age, a little bit younger than I, whose parents could afford creepy crawlers. Were they, were they one day playing with these gooey gag, easy bake oven for non edible foods one day and looked at it and goes, you know what? I want to see, I really want to see a movie about this fucking mess. Now, I just want to know how will this movie capture all those times when all your crap like got burnt in that oven and you had to go in there and scrape out all the crusty dead gack and gook and whatever the hell that shit is made out of, out of the grill of the oven. I want to, I want to know how they're going to capture that in this film. I don't think they are. (laughs) (laughs) I don't think so either. (laughs) And I mean, I know like my kids have never even heard of it. Um, You know, my, my son, He's 20, and so he's already past the point of having, you know, he he missed that era of the nostalgia factory, um, and my and then my daughters are um, they they don't like anything remotely scary, so they wouldn't be into anything that's creepy crawlers or whatever like that. So, and me, I was um, on the tail end of being too old. Uh, uh, for it when it originally came out uh, I actually forgot that it was the the until you reminded me 
before the show that it was the boys' version of the Easy Bake Oven. I forgot you actually cooked them up, you know. Um, but I just remember them being all goopy and crazy, and you could, you know, break them apart or whatever. But yeah, so I, I, I don't know. I don't. I just don't think this is going to be good. I don't even know what plot can come out of out of this. I guess there's a cartoon of it. I don't know. Who knows? I guess these people think they do. All right. Well, let's see here. From uh, moving up here next uh, from Deadline.com by way of Anthony Delessandro. Uh, let's see here. This uh, was uh, this is an exclusive for them as of today. So head to Deadline. They're the first people to get it. Uh, it says that they are hearing that Edge of Tomorrow director Doug Lyman uh, is in early talks to take over the directing reins of Warner Brothers reboot The Cannonball Run, the 1980s action comedy franchise made popular by star Burt Reynolds and director Hal Needham. That's right. So they both of these movies, Cannonball One, Cannonball Run One and Two, were directed by Needham and featured all-star ensembles. Uh, this course had eighty stars like Reynolds, Farrah Fawcett, Roger Moore, Dean Martin, Sammy Davis Jr., and Dom DeLuise, and an early pick uh, of Jackie Chan. Believe it or not. So um, and and of course in this in in, in the movie, uh, at least the first one. You know, it's a race across the United States, and they have all these different people with all these different gags and trying to get it done. Second one did not do anywhere near as well as the first one. It's definitely more of a cult classic. But, um, yeah, you know, I have the first movie on DVD, and that is definitely a fun movie for me. I, I try to watch it at least once a year. Um, and, you know, I... I, I I would actually like to see how they would make this work. This is one of those few types of movies that actually works well in the reboot because, um, believe it or not, the Cannonball Run really existed. And I do mean past tense because the technology for the police got so good that it became virtually impossible for people to actually make the run uh, from coast to coast within the time allotted. Because the idea was you only had, uh, I want to say you only had like 31 hours or something like that to get, you know, literally to get from, you know, L.A. to Charlotte, North Carolina or wherever it is. So you've got to go literally from coast to coast and you've only got that amount of time. And so, you you know, trying to go 4,000 miles in 30 hours, you've got to do like 90 miles an hour almost the whole way. And so that's what made this movie so much fun. Well, they did. There are people out there who tried to do it. And they would literally, they'd build special cars. They would do things to make the cars so that they wouldn't be detectable by radar. Um, they would do things to help them disguise them literally from like satellite view so that helicopter cops couldn't come after them. And I want to say the last attempt, oh, I'm probably way off on this, but I want to say that the last attempt was like 2009. And it was just too difficult even then. Uh, to get it done. So as long as it's not, oh, we're just going to make it take place in the 80s again, but they're actually going to try and figure out a way to make it take place today, I would be totally down to see how they try and pull this off. Especially if you get a pretty good ensemble cast going. 
um, to, you know, see some vets from the comedy, uh, you know, of 20 years ago, bring in the new up and comers and stuff like that. Um, and, you know, maybe have like, um, Burt Reynolds waiting at the finish line, something like that. I, I think, I think it would be a lot, I think it would be a lot of fun. Um, so yeah, I, I would be down for this. I don't know. Tim, are you at all interested or excited that this could be happening? I like the idea of Doug Lyman directing. He, of course, did Born Identity uh, and Edge of Tomorrow. But I like what you were saying about it being pretty much impossible to not be detected by police or anything like that. I just really hope they don't do anything stupid and far-fetched where it's like, ooh, we have like this technology that's going to jam the signals Whereas I think they could do something just as entertaining, something that they would have done back in the 80s or 70s because they didn't have that whole technology in, in trying to ground something like this more into reality. Whereas like maybe some of the cops are just crooked, you know, like they're it kind of very much like it's a mad, 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 mad world where the cops just kind of sit back to watch all the madness unfold. Because it's going sure. to be a lot easier to 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 capture one person or maybe two people than to capture thirty people, you know. I like that idea a lot. If they do but, something like that, I can be behind it. And and I think though, again, that finding ways to get around the technology of today could also be fun because in the original Cannonball Run again because like Jackie Chan was in it he he plays a guy from Japan and one of and he's got a partner who's from Japan and they have this like super complete tricked out like Nissan Sentra or something like that or like an old Datsun <laughs> or something yeah and and it like their whole plan is to drive at night and so they they're trying to cover um they're they're you know pushing speed limits during the day but as soon as it gets dark, they can go into this like invisible mode where you can't see them and uh, they, they, they also can't be tracked by radar and stuff like that. And they've got like, you know, computer screens inside and it's like this computer central car that's going like 98 miles an hour, 100 miles an hour and stuff like that. So and it's and I mean, it's obviously, you know, 80s tech, but it's meant to be over the top and like, oh, hey, this is how they're going to defeat it. And something like that, I think, would be fun if they, you know, kept the spirit of, you know, the absurdity behind trying to defeat the tech. Like maybe, uh, you know, instead of it being um, Japanese tech from the 80s or whatever, it would be like conspiracy theorists who are like, okay, this is how we're going to beat the technology. And they're going to have all this stuff. And of course, we're looking at it going, oh, my God, this is so stupid. It's never going to work. Um, and then watching them fail miserably, I, that kind of thing I think would be hilarious. So, you know, there's just so much fun they can have with it. I hope it's just not a straight reboot because that, that's just lazy. You may as well just go watch the original. So sure. Yeah. Anyway, so that was uh, my piece. I got one other piece of news, but, uh, if you've got anything else, jump on in there, sir. I will end my news with some Woody Allen news. It's a lot better than saying Jilla pudding chocolate cake news, I guess. TheRap.com, yet I kind of did it in a Bill Cosby voice. Via TheRap.com, Woody Allen says he should be poster boy for the Me Too hashtag Me Too movement. 
This here is written by Beatrice Verhoeven, and it was published on June 4th, 2018, of course. It says this, Woody Allen says he should be the poster boy for the hashtag MeToo movement, given that he hasn't been accused of sexual misconduct by any of the actresses with whom he's worked over the years. Saying, quote, I'm a big advocate of the hashtag MeToo movement, end quote, Allen said in an interview with Argentinian news program Paradismo Paratodos, released Monday, quote, I feel when they find people who harass innocent women and men, it's a good thing that they're exposing them. But you know, I should be the poster boy for the hashtag MeToo movement, because I have worked in movies for 50 years. I've worked with hundreds of actresses and not a single one, big ones, famous ones, ones starting out, have ever, ever suggested any kind of in propriety at all. I've always had a wonderful record with them, end quote. In the interview, the Oscar-winning filmmaker said that it, quote, bothers him, end quote, that he gets, quote, linked, end quote, to disgraced Hollywood figures like Harvey Weinstein, who has been accused of sexual misconduct by dozens and dozens of women. Allen says, quote, I think in any situation where anyone is accused of something unjustly, this is a sad thing. I think everybody would agree with that. Everyone wants justice to be done. If there is something like the hashtag MeToo movement now, you root for them. You want them to bring to justice these terrible harassers, these people who do all these terrible things. And I think that's a good thing, end quote. And then he goes on to say, quote, what bothers me is that I get linked in with them. People who have been accused by 20 women, 50 women, 100 women of abuse and abuse and abuse. And I, who was only accused by one woman in a child custody case, which was looked at and proven to be untrue, I get lumped in with these people, end quote. The interviewer also asked whether Alan had molested his adopted daughter, Dylan Farrow, who has, said she ha uh, who has said she was sexually abused by her father on August 4th, 1992, in an attic when she was seven years old. Alan responds with, quote, Of course not. I mean, this is just so crazy. This is something that has been thoroughly looked at 25 years ago by all the authorities, and everybody came out, and everybody came to the conclusion that it was untrue. And that was the end, and I've gone on with my life. For to come back now, it's a terrible thing to accuse a person of. I'm a man with a family and my own children, so of course it's upsetting. End all quotes there. Matt, what do you think about this? I think uh, there is definitely a lot of truth in, in what he is saying. There, there are definitely people who are being lumped in with all the evil people whom they are not evil people really themselves. Uh, and, and in the case of Woody Allen, he has never been proven to be anything remotely like these people. He never worked with Mia Farrow on a movie? Oh, he did? Of course he did. Okay. So, well, because she, she accused him of some bad things. Now, I, and, and that's not to bring up all that other stuff and, and say that that's the same thing. I just thought it was interesting that, you know... Uh, that that he said, I've never been accused of anything by anyone I've ever worked with, and um, that's not a hundred percent true. But I mean, potatoes, potatoes on that. I I will, however, say that it, sure. I I think that um, 
It is... I think he does make some salient points. But I I also don't think that... Um, I, I think that he's waited too long to make them. Um, for the most part, everybody came out so hard and so fast that um, by the time we started catching up to like where the real problems were, um, we hadn't ever gotten to the real problem and, and before people started overplaying their hand and we had people with false accusations coming out. Um, the real problem was that nobody spoke up. Everybody knew and nobody spoke up. Um, and, and that's the problem that needs to be dealt with here. Um, and, and I say that as the problem, the issue, the overarching issue, uh, or arching issue is that Nobody did anything to stop it. Now, individually, yes, we should make great pains or take great pains to make examples of confirmed serial rapists like Harvey Weinstein, uh, Bill Cosby even, despite all the good that um, Bill Cosby had done, um, you know, beyond that. We should make, you know, we should make sure that uh, people are held accountable. Um, even in certain areas where we don't know necessarily 100% what the right answer is, like when we were discussing John Lasseter a couple of weeks ago. Um, coincidentally, haven't really heard the final say on that. Um, but, you know, so, so we can have those discussions too. But I think that despite the points that Woody Allen's making, I, I, I think that he's, I think he waited too long to, to, to make them because at this point, yes, it doesn't matter that people, um, as bad as it is, it doesn't exactly matter that people are getting lumped into categories where they don't belong. The reason why they're getting lumped into the categories where they don't belong is because there was a system out there that was ex that was extremely exploitative. Um, and it wasn't just women. It was young boys, uh, young men, other children, uh, to a, to a lesser degree in the child world uh, that we know of, girls as well. And it's like we have just this complete predatory system that 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 needs to be taken care of. And it's like, oh well, if we just take care of Harvey Weinstein, no, we need to take care of the system that allowed him to thrive. Um. So I guess that's where I'm at. It's not that I don't. It's not that I don't agree with him. It's that I think that he's making. He's he's talking about. He's talking about the wrong symptoms to the problem. I think is what it really boils down to. Um, that being said, uh, I am glad that there are people out there who do understand what it you know what the boundaries are and who puts that forward um and i'm glad that uh that he's at least willing to step forward and talk about it and have a discussion i think that's good as well so i guess i guess that's where i'm at on it sir that's where i end up
Okay, well then, uh, this is my last piece of news uh, from the playlist.net by way of Charles Barfield. Uh, Frank Marshall says Netflix will premiere Orson Welles' uh, The Other Side of the Wind this fall. So, um, just sum up this article really, really fast. Basically, as we all know, Netflix and Ken uh, have not been uh, the best of friends lately, and this caused the cancellation of their screening of Orson Welles' The Other Side of the Wind, uh, that Netflix came in and helped uh, gather some filmmakers to come in and edit the final pieces for it. Um, Frank Marshall, however, has come out and said that, um, he's a producer, by the way, of this, uh, that they are looking for the next venue, but um, and, and it, no matter what, the venue that they find will be something that can be found this fall. So it's not 100% certain Early fall, late fall, whatever, but we do know that ideally by Thanksgiving, we will have had a chance to see this premiered properly. Um, Tim, happy to hear that. I think that's cool. I'm, I'm, I'm definitely looking forward to this. It'll be interesting to see how it gets all, how it gets all done when we get to see it. Um, oh, totally. Since I'm one of the backers of this movie, I really want to see what my money went to. So oh, cool. yeah, I, I am, I'm excited. I put a lot of stock in this movie, so <laughs> so I, it kind of pissed me off knowing that Netflix pulled it out of the Cannes uh, festival run because uh, I, what I've heard as of now it's supposed to be a, a great like they did apparently they did a great job restructuring the movie or actually just structuring the movie and putting it together as if Orson Welles would have put it together. And I'm very happy to hear that they're at least going to have a premiere. They're at least going to release the theaters, and therefore it actually has a chance of, uh, of of getting some kind of awards recognition in terms of like BAFTAs or even Oscars. So I'm very happy about it, and I honestly, I cannot wait to see it and receive my perks. Yay. <laughs> nice. All right. Well, that is the end of my news. Next week's... Uh bonus segment is going to be a three squared we haven't done a three squared in damn near a year so it's going to be a three square three squared on our favorite ensemble heist films that's right and that's going to make a little more sense when you hear next week's movies uh but until then we have to get to the movies for this week don't we sir yes we do well then here we go folks it's all right and this week's movies are solo a star wars story action point and upgrade so where do you want to start sir you just want to get the misery out of the way yeah, let's go with Action Point. It's literally like your soul getting kicked in its balls. <laughs> it's not very far off, folks. Action Point. Okay, I gotta go. Thanks for taking care of her dad. She loves having you around. Get it at the bottom of the ball. Really? Ah. Ah. <laughs> that looks fun. Your mom ever tell you it's your old papa home on the greatest amusement parks of all time? Those days were different. There weren't so many rules. Your mom would come for the summer. Boogie! Hi! Oh, baby doll! Even back then, she was the voice of reason. You're the lifeguard. Shouldn't we be facing the water? Ah, let God sort them out. What's our attendance today? Down about 45%. What? 
suppose you've probably heard you got some competition in town. We've got roller coasters and a chairlift that actually works. This is our home. We can't just let somebody take it. What this place needs is an excitement enema. We're going to make this place fast and loose. Every ride, steady go. Every attraction, no rules, no speed limits. Just pure fun. That sounds kind of dangerous. Let's see what this baby can do. The new action point is now open. Free beer for everybody. We need something to do with these little bastards. Like the petting zoo. Hold my beer. All right, so basically 2018 American comedy film is directed by Tim uh, Kirkby, stars Johnny Knoxville and Chris Pontius. Um, this is very, very, very loosely based um, on a, um, a a place called Action Park in New Jersey that was... Um, well, there's actually really good uh, documentaries on it on YouTube. I think Defunct Land has a really good one, and Abandoned also has. Uh, so if you if you're a fans of those series on YouTube, Defunct Land and uh, uh, Abandoned, check those out on YouTube, and they have they'll, they'll tell you about Action Park. Now, this park uh, again is is basically Action Point is about. This guy uh, is played by Johnny Knoxville, and he has a very neat idea for an amusement park, and it, it's just kind of like throwing it together, whatever he thinks would work um, to make people come and spend money and have fun, be exciting. And then a, 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 a an upstart company comes in, basically a real corporation who understands safety, <laughs> comes in and now he's like, oh, I gotta keep, I gotta keep this thing running. I gotta keep this alive. And he also wants to impress his daughter. And, uh, you know, and so he starts coming up with the most craziest, insane ideas for rides. And this is the movie. Um, and of course, he's kind of telling this in the series of flashbacks to his granddaughter. Um, and so, yeah, so we have a, an excuse to put Johnny Knoxville in a, um, grandpa suit again. So, all right. I, when Tim and I were talking about this before the movie or before the show, let me just say that we all loved the, we, we, we all loved Adam Sandler movies 20 some odd years ago, 20, 25 years ago. And we thought they were great, but now we've, and and we remember them fondly, and we have the nostalgia factor. And so, even though the movies themselves um, objectively aren't super awesome, we remember them fondly, and we like them, and we'll go back and watch them, and we still laugh. Fine. Um, we give Adam Sandler the benefit of the doubt more often than not today because of that. Now he's you know very rapidly running out of goodwill amongst his fans. Yet somehow internationally, he still manages to make studios money. Uh, you know, again, look at his Netflix deal. So, but when you watch these Adam Sandler movies today, you're just like, oh, it's just this terrible hollow shell of what he was before. 
and very rarely are any of his movies today any good. And this is basically, Action Point is ostensibly the jackass version of that. We liked Jackass for what it was back in the day. We thought it was funny back in the day and and stupid and enter, yet entertaining. Um, I actually went back and listened to episode 48 of uh, the SLS cast where we covered Bad Grandpa when it came out. Um, I gave it a 2.5, uh, mainly because while I thought the stunts themselves were funny, I didn't really like the way that they tried to blend the live action aspect of jackass of pranks and reality with a frame narrative which was the story of bad grandpa and his kid and his grandkid tim actually uh refused even to <laughs> to rate the movie but at least said that he was you know basically entertained by it um, so, so when we come back, so now when we come to see Action Point, which is basically a fully, uh, you know, it, it's a, a, a fully immersive film this time. There's no pranks in terms of, you know, live action stuff that they're put or, you know, live pranking, um, in a frame narrative. This is entirely a narrative film, uh, that just has all the jackass stunts and humor that we've come to expect from Johnny Knoxville and crew. But in this film, it's just, you just kind of see that these guys have nothing left. And despite the fact that these guys um, do try and make funny stunts and do try to, to bring it to the over-the-top thing, and, and they still do their own stunts just like they've always done, we just need more than that. Honestly, they may have, they, they should have just tried to do it as just a jackass film and just put the individual stunts in there and just kind of, you know, do a one-off pay-per-view even, I don't know, uh, event of them doing jackass stuff because the movie itself is terrible and it doesn't work. And yet you just kind of feel bad. Like this is all that these guys have left. And so that's why I give this movie a two. I do not like the movie. Um, it's not a good movie. But it's going to remind you of why you liked the original Jackass stuff back in the day. So two stars. Do not like it. Honestly, don't even bother seeing it. Tim! <laughs> you're, 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 please regale us. Favor us with your brief review. <laughs> I left within the first 15 or 20 minutes. I have movie pass. If I went by myself, I probably would have attempted to stick it out until at least one semi-funny laugh occurred. But no laughs happened. No laughs came from me or really any other living thing in the theater uh, uh, within that first 15, 20 minutes. I, the reason why, one of the main reasons why I left is because my more significant SO came with me. Her movie pass did not work. Uh, so we, she actually had to pay for a ticket and it was a $15.33 ticket. I felt awful, awful that money was at like outside of movie pass and money, real money, paper money, her money was going towards this piece of shit. It was bad. I mean, it's kind of sad Knowing that the actual theme park of Action Point 
which was based in New Jersey, I think, was a place that Johnny Knox- Knoxville actually visited when he was a kid. And he cherished the memories of that place. Yet the movie was handled so poorly. I just don't get why, why didn't they just keep the same structure that they had with Bad Grandpa, where you have a story, but you still did pranks. You still did stunts. It didn't have to be a biography. That's definitely where this movie fucked up. There's obviously stunts. Apparently, it's after the 15 or 20 minute mark. I don't know about the the, the number of stunts that happens. Uh, I don't even know what the severity of the stunts are. I just had the feeling had a feeling that every great thing you saw in the movie is probably what you saw in the fucking trailer. And you just can't make a movie featuring that stuff where they still have to build a relationship between a father and daughter. They still have to give you the historical facts, I guess, or tell you the story about this man and the theme park itself. And at the same time, they're trying to capture the feeling, the sense, the culture of the 70s. The movie just basically shot itself in the soul from the get-go. Either make it a straightforward flick or do it jackass style. And have these vignettes, but still have like a loose story to tie everything together, a la Bad Grandpa. It's soul-crushing, in a way. Uh, So I'm giving this one a zero. Zero, 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 zero out of five. Arizona zero, like the clouds in the sky. Ooh, did that work? Not not really, but you're getting there. Okay. Uh, All right. So are we going to go in alphabetical order then and do solo next, or are we going to skip right into upgrade? Uh, You know, let's do solo. Why not? Why not? Solo, a Star Wars story. You're after something. Is it revenge? Money? Or is it something else? You look good. A little rough around the edges. Been good? Heard about a job. Big shot gangster putting together crew. I'm a driver. And I'm a flyer. I waited a long time for a shot like this. What do you think? Well, what do you know? You got a line on a ship? Yeah, I know a guy. He's the best smuggler around. I heard a story about you. I was wondering if it's true. Everything you've heard about me. It's true. L3! Let's go with the mean man's face. Who are these guys? If you come with us, you're in this life for good. You might want to buckle up, baby. Here they come! Let me give you some advice. We assume everyone will betray you. And you will never be disappointed. I got a really good feeling about this. Since when do you know how to fly? <laughs> 190 years old? You look great. Push it. Okay, so yeah, 2018 American space western film based on the Star Wars character Han Solo. Uh, This one is directed by Ron Howard. Of course, produced by Lucasfilm, distributed by Walt Disney. Um, and this is the second Star Wars anthology film uh, after 2016's Rogue uh, One. And, uh, yeah, film is uh, 
stars uh, Alden Einrich, uh, Woody Harrelson, Amelia Clark, Donald Glover, Tandy Newton, Phoebe Waller-Bridge, Juna Suatomo, and Paul Bettany. Um, yeah, so basically you're kind of seeing the very early misadventures of Han Solo, and of course where he comes from on Karelia, and how he meets the people that are so famous and or infamous in the Star Wars universe that he relates to. Here's here's where I'm I'm at on this movie. The movie is not as bad as I thought it was going to be, so that's good. That that's a good thing. Um the the movie definitely works as a heist film and it works as this weird um I don't want to say irony. So let's say paradox. It exists as its own paradox, if you will. It is the Star Wars movie we've always needed, but we just didn't need it in this Star Wars movie. Ah, what the hell does that mean, Matt? Here's what it means. We have desperately needed a Star Wars movie that had nothing to do with Jedi, Nothing to do with the Empire. Nothing to do with the overarching stories and sagas that we've been seeing and reading and watching and listening to for the past 41 fucking years. What we needed was this movie. A heist movie that doesn't take into account the Jedi, that barely, barely touches upon anything of the Empire other than it just exists as a static, as the status quo, you know, government entity. So we have a movie that that we've always needed, and that's this movie in terms of the... The, the, no Jedi, you know, this this movie is a heist movie that doesn't have anything to do with anything other than just existing in the Star Wars universe. But we didn't need it from Han Solo's point of view. We didn't need a Han Solo movie. We didn't need anything tangentially related to Han Solo. Because Han Solo has been done to fucking death, literally. Does anybody remember The Force Awakens? The fucker died in that movie. And that, notwithstanding, we still have Harrison Ford, who is alive and fresh in our minds, because he was in The Fucking Force Awakens two fucking years ago. So we didn't need the Han Solo movie. But we did need a movie that existed in the universe that had nothing to do with anything else. So with this paradox in play, the movie does okay. It doesn't, it's not so bad. Um, it's fun to see the, the, um, the way that the universe would have played out, um, and the characters within it. I think that the, um, the SJD, the social justice droid, um, was immediately tired. I, I didn't like that at all. Um, but it was still kind of fun to see the way that 
you know, Han and Chewie came together. Um, I'm I'm not a super big fan of Amelia Clark in or her character, but I did really like that. I, I did like the way that the movie came to its who's screwing who finale in an office of all places. I mean, it literally takes place. The finale of this movie takes place in a gangster's office. That's, I mean, there's some, again, there's some cool concepts going on in here. Um, despite that, uh, you know, Paul Bettany might want to stick with being vision and not necessarily being the bad guy of a solo movie or of a star Wars movie. I don't know. Um, but at the end of the day, at the end of the day, brass tacks, I got to give this a three. I did legitimately like this movie. I think it's got quite a number of flaws and the premise itself being based on Han Solo is completely, completely unnecessary. But the movie itself as a, as a standalone film within the universe was a breath of fresh air. And you know what? With Ron Howard stepping in, uh, which is what caused a huge number of reshoots, ballooning budgets, and all that kind of stuff, um, you know, given the situation he was walking into, I think he did a damn good job. Um, I, I, I don't think the movie's, you know, going to be the best thing he's ever directed, but it sure isn't going to hurt. So I give this one three stars, three out of five. Tim, what do you got, sir? Question, did you feel like the transition between the directors seemed pretty seamless? Like, did you notice, like, a shift in the directors, kind of like with Justice League, when What's-His-Name took over, when Joss Whedon took over? You, I mean, you kind of got a feeling that, not just because of CGI, Superman upper lip, you just, you felt like this constant imbalance in the film, because there was already groundwork there, and somebody else came in and just laid a completely different groundwork. Uh, did you feel that with Solo, or does it just seem, did it actually feel Somewhat. pretty fresh, I, would, I guess? Well, I would say that the first third of the movie is the rockiest uh, in terms of pacing, timing, and getting a feel for where Ron Howard was stepping in. Beyond the first third, though, any other transitions or anything like that, couldn't really tell. Um, and uh, I, I think there were maybe some individual scenes that might have been, you know, left from the previous directors. But um, yeah, once once the film settled in its proper direction of the correct uh, of the actual heist itself that it was really going for. Um, uh, strictly speaking, folks, this is a two heist movie. <laughs> so uh, once once they you know get their sights set on what's happening past the first heist, um, I didn't notice any more rockiness and any more you know transition issues um, in, in in that regard. Yeah, I mean that's one of the big takeaways I got from this movie. Like it was a big deal when it was announced that Ron Howard was going to get the solo directing credit and Chris Lord or Phil Lord and Chris Miller were only going to get executive producer credits. But I, of what I hear of what I've read, this is definitely Ron Howard's movie. Like he had a pretty big undertaking and I think it paid off. And maybe that's why I give this movie four stars surprisingly. 
because it it was just an entertaining movie. It wasn't trying to be anything too over the top. It wasn't trying to be overtly comedic. It wasn't trying to be overly nostalgic. And that was one thing I was worried about, and other fans, I guess, were worried about, that they were afraid they were going to see the cantina, they were going to see, like, the the pig nose guy, you know, from the original movie. That Rogue One even goes to show you the pig nose face dude. Maybe worried that, like, random characters might pop up, like uh, Anthony Edwards or Warwick Davis, things like that. <laughs> well, see, I don't care about that, because they weren't playing anybody. Like, they were just side characters, they, it wasn't a bunch of obvious fan service like what Rogue One absolutely was. Rogue One, I don't remember the... I was trying to find our episode that we did it, that we reviewed it, where the episode where we reviewed it to see what my score was. But I know it wasn't a good score. And the reason was because that movie just felt choppy. It felt all over the place. It was just a movie for the fans, and that was pretty much it. It didn't really work at all. I didn't like a lot of the actors and a lot of the performances. And all the, It just didn't work for me. So my expectations were so low going into this film that, oh, no shit, seriously? Sorry, Matt just sent me a text saying that my rating was 3.5. <laughs> Fuck, really? Yep. Okay. I had 4.25, and yours was 3.5. Interesting. Okay, well, it has definitely gone down since the second time I've seen it. Then the main reason why I gave Rogue One a 3.5 was because of the last 45 minutes. I thought was a great piece of action, and that was pretty much it. I went into Solo expecting it to be more of the fan service. And not much storytelling, not much character development. I wasn't sure how, what's his name, how he was going to be as Han Solo. I just didn't know really what to expect. Uh, But based on reviews and other things I've read and heard about the movie up to actually seeing it, I don't know. I I wasn't expecting much. Needless to say, I was pleasantly surprised. I actually enjoyed this one. I was a little turned off by, I guess, all the Star Wars nuances and like the opening titles and even with the score. They played with the score a lot. Some people were criticizing that the movie just felt a little bit overscored even. It's because it's very reminiscent of John Williams, I thought. And a lot of people don't like being told by the score, like, ooh, you're watching an adventure film. You know, it works with Indiana Jones and it works with some of the Star Wars movies, but for some reason, they felt like it didn't work for this movie. But really, I agree with you, Matt. This is definitely the Star Wars sequel <laughs> that we needed. You know, this is the movie that we needed after even The Force Awakens. It doesn't pertain much at all to the Siths or the Jedis, or the Force, or even lightsabers. There is a huge spoiler that Matt didn't bring up, and I don't think I will either. There is definitely some of that closer to the end, but that is not what the film is about. It's about character building. It's about relationships. In some way, it's kind of even about family. And sure as shit, Alden Enric actually did a pretty good job. I thought Donald Glover as Lando Calrissian did a pretty good job. Alden, he made Han Solo his own. Donald Glover kind of mimicked original Lando Calrissian a little bit, but it even worked. And within the context of this film, it worked. I thought it was very entertaining. However, there are things that really kind of bother me. And if it wasn't for that third act, I wouldn't have given this movie a four, probably a 3.5. Too much action, too many vignettes. 
that only kind of mattered to the story and character building. Like showing, like just, it felt like there was just like too many little spouts of action that just really weren't needed. Where there's something about reserved action that matters the most. I really like that gag when he's in that little speeder car thingy and he tries to put it up on one side. I thought that was the stupidest thing until the payoff to show you, oh, he thinks he's cool, but it just did not work. That was funny. That was a nice little moment. But there were other action scenes and little action moments like, oh, shit, we got caught. We got to run. So let's make an let's make an action vignette out of this piece. That's not needed. You can just show people running or just cut to them turning a corner, very much like in the original Star Wars flicks, turning the corner and all of a sudden nobody knows where they're at. They're well hidden. That's a good way of building suspense and mystery while you're still carrying on with the original flow before that moment. A lot of the side characters were bothering me as well. There were many attempts for the film to establish emotion, establish peril, establish devastation. For example, you have the killing of robot feminist, the killing of non-rocket raccoon bug guy. Uh, You also have the killing of Afro Thandie Newton. You know, all that just felt very forced and unneeded, especially between the not-rocket raccoon bug guy and the robot feminist these weren't characters that we just really didn't have time to care about them yet it's handled in in such a very in such a sad way and it just cheapens the overall effect of the movie it's not establishing anything for han solo he doesn't become more of an emotional soul or more of a caring soul because of the loss of these two no and it even doesn't do anything for lando calrissian because nothing else pertaining to that robot feminist comes up later on in the film other than she was a part of the millennium falcon for a half second (laughs) until it got broken up to shit but when it comes down to it i had a good time watching this movie i'd like to even see more solo movies i honestly believe that this has the makings of something special it could be a trilogy it could be three separate stories That would be fantastic. And that third movie should not connect to A New Hope in any way whatsoever. But it doesn't seem like that's what they want to do. Because they've already did that with Rogue One. So that is why I give Solo a Star Wars story a 4 out of 5. I thoroughly enjoy it. Luckily, Matthew, you at least gave it a 3. That I did. And last but not least, we have Upgrade. As a quadriplegic, it must be frustrating for you. Someone who likes to get things done with their hands. Here's the thing. Four guys murdered my wife. If I could find these men, I'd do it. What if I told you I could offer you something that would enable you to walk again? I call it STEM. A computer chip that has the potential to change everything. It's a new, better brain. I understand the system operating your body for you. Can anybody else hear you? No, only you. May I point something out? In the drone surveillance footage, Sir Brantner, Marine Corps, address 414 Citrus, New Ground. We'll need a plan. I got this. This doesn't seem like a well-thought-out plan. Help! I need your permission to operate independently. Permission granted! Thank you. Stay down, man. 
science fiction horror film uh, written and directed by Lee Winnell. It stars Logan Marshall Green, otherwise known as Budget Tom Hardy, <laughs> Betty Gabriel, and Harrison Gilbertson. film is basically following a dude by the name of Gray who is accosted by some bad guys, ends up paralyzed, and gets a miracle uh, implant that allows him to walk again with bonus, like, you know, superhuman strength and superhuman agility. And shenanigans ensue, especially because in the same incident where he was paralyzed and needed this implant, he had to watch his wife die. This movie is not the best movie. But this movie is incredibly inventive. And this movie is incredibly inventive on a budget of between three and five million dollars. And quite frankly, in terms of the special effects and the design and the way that they executed this budget, I've seen movies with three to four times this budget that didn't look this good. So... Well fucking done to upgrade on this movie uh, or to the to Blumhouse. Uh, who who uh, Blum, it's, it's not Blumhouse. It's productions. It's, like it's Blumhouse, Blumhouse Tilt. Tilt. Yeah, there you go. Blumhouse yeah. Tilt, which is a division of Blumhouse. Now, the thing behind this movie that makes it so intriguing is the way that they effectively blended the science fiction and the action horror elements behind it. Um, it, it, You have this legitimate cross between rooting for our protagonist, but at the same time, um, understanding where the protagonist's head at, which makes the horror aspect of it all the more realistic for you despite any flaws in execution of the, the horror aspect. The science fiction side also has some very, very good nuanced uh, implementation on it. For example, uh, the implant that, he, that, that Gray ends up with uh, is basically reattaching the line in the spinal cord that has the brain tell the rest of the body what to do. So the chip stem, as it's called, um, is receiving the signals from the brain and then transmitting those to the uh, muscles. And so when you see stem in action, it almost looks like a robot. And it's fun. This is, I mean, and, and it's all of the movements and motions that happen. No matter where uh, Gray is on the spectrum, 
of his abilities because again you know wow wait i can move like a you know i've got this increased strength and ridiculous agility and things like that um you have uh yet you have it in a very robotic manner which is something that you don't necessarily think of what happened. And it gives you an idea of how appreciative you can be of fluid human motion versus AI motor control. So there's all these little things that are, that are running into it. And the interplay that occurs as a result of the stem implant and Gray's, um, and Gray's vendetta also make for a fun dynamic within the film. That being said, the story and the writing are way, way, way pedestrian and telegraphed from a mile away. And so you're just kind of sitting around waiting for the other shoe to drop the entire time you're watching the film. And so because you constantly have this own you have your own clock running as okay yep this is the next step this is the next step and you can completely see it happening it takes a lot of the fun out of it but not so much that it hurts the way you view it nor does it destroy the inventiveness behind the idea um so i gotta give this movie four stars i really like the inventiveness, I like the cinematography, I liked what they did uh, with the special effects given the budget that they had, and I liked I liked the interplay that they had there where you get to see how the AI works and how a human would interact with it. The story elements and the writing I'm willing to forgive that because of the innovations and because of the and because of the way they properly, in my opinion, mashed the sci-fi and horror elements. But it is ridiculously predictable, and that can take a lot of the fun out of it. Even still, four out of five. Really enjoyed this movie. This is definitely becoming a sleeper hit, so go see it. Upgrade. Four stars. Bring us home, Tim. This is directed by your man, Lee 1L. He's a part of the Insidious crew. So I, I, I know you are a fan of James Wan and all of them, so maybe they're your go-tos these days. Upgrades is a good movie. It's an entertaining movie. It's very pretty to look at. I didn't realize how inexpensive this movie was, so that's news to me. It's a great movie to look at, for sure. And... Matt is absolutely right. We've seen movies that were made for a hundred million bucks that looked absolutely like shit. In fact, the other day, Jurassic World was on NBC, and I caught about fifteen minutes of it. It looked like a made-for-TV movie. It just didn't look good at all with all the special effects. And but the great thing about Upgrade is that it uses camera effects and practical effects, which makes the violence, the gore, the action that much more effective. Everything that pertains to that is fantastic to watch. And luckily, that's pretty much the majority of the movie. But when it comes down to character building or even performances, for instance, Grey, played by Logan Marshall Green, 
I just, I couldn't buy him as a character. He had a country accent that went in and out throughout the entire movie. He is a very snarky son of a bitch, but it wasn't funny. I just really didn't buy it. And unfortunately for this guy and for what happens during its last act, there is, of course, a twist, a twist that you saw coming from a mile away. I mean, I I think everybody can admit that it's obvious who actually ordered the hit and who the hit was actually ordered on. But they treat it as if it's like a big revelation, kind of like a saw ending that just doesn't quite work. But hey, this movie is made incredibly well. And that's pretty much all I got to say about it. I I would have liked more of a of a Snake Plissken type of character in the lead role as Gray. You know, again, just not very likable. Too many quips and snarky talk that just falls flat. It's all in the delivery for that stuff to actually work. That is why I give Upgrade 3 out of 5. I think it's for a sci-fi movie. It's very interesting. I think people will enjoy it. Visually, it's got it all. Awesome, awesome. All right. Well, that brings us to the end of the movies. Next week's movies are Oceans 8. Hey, look, what do you know? Now you know why we got our three squared. Uh, We've also got Hereditary and Hotel Artemis. And without further ado, I think it is time for the spiel, is it not, sir? Spiel on! You can eat shit for all I care, Miss Sandstone, or eat anything that you like, or do anything that you like. Just don't assume that I want to know your troubles. Now, if you wouldn't mind, I'm a busy woman with a full day's work ahead of me. Please remove yourself from my office. You're a real cunt, do you know that? A real fucking cunt! How can you be so shitty to people? How can you stand yourself? I guess there's just two kinds of people, Miss Sandstone. My kind of people and assholes. It's rather obvious which category you fit into. Have a nice day. Eat the bird, bitch! Well, the music you've been listening to, as always, has been brought to us by our music partners, Cries of Solace. You can check them out at ReverbNation.com and Facebook.com, both slash Cries of Solace. As for us, we are, of course, the SLS Cast. You can find us at SLScast.com. You can send us an email to the show at SLScast.com. You can follow the show on Twitter at the SLS cast. You can follow me. This is Matt on Twitter at nitwit12345. And of course, climb aboard that information superhighway and track down Tim on Twitter if that's your heart's desire. Don't forget you can subscribe to us on iTunes and or favorite us on Stitcher Radio as well as track us down on the old SoundCloud. And you can even get us on Patreon now. And so until next week, this is Matt saying that thanks to Logan Marshall Green, I get to say this. Being vital means knowing the rules and being brave enough. Take care, cinephiles, and we'll talk at you again next week. Madam, perhaps we should be going. Oh, farewell, monsieur. Thank you so much. So nice to see you. And I hope very much we will see you again very soon. Au revoir, monsieur.
take it to Chinatown. Thanks again for listening to the SLS Cast with your hosts, Matt and Tim. You can find us over at slscast.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at the SLS Cast. You can send us an email to the show at slscast.com. And of course, you can always subscribe to us on iTunes and or favorite us on Stitcher Radio. Thanks again for listening. <laughs>